Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Eurythmics podcast. I'm Rex Aldana, along with my uh, longtime friend, Mark Stevens. Hello, Rex. I am back. It's me, Mark. Yes. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be talking about Sweet Dreams are made of this, the album, with our special guest, Ian Renner, who is a Eurythmics fan from Australia. And I'm going to let Ian now tell us a little bit about himself, and then we're going to dive into everything. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, let me just thank you both for all of the effort you've been putting into these podcasts over the preceding, what is it, about six months or so. Uh, it's been incredible um, to listen to everything you've been doing. And I have the, <laughs> the, the great distinction of following your podcast with Dave Stewart. Uh, I obviously don't have nearly the musical chops that he does, but what I'll try to make up for is with enthusiasm and effusive praise. Uh, so ah. as uh, you mentioned, uh, I live in Australia, but as the accent suggests, I actually was born in, in, in the United States. So I've been in Australia just for 16 years now. Uh, so I became a Eurythmics fan. Well, I saw the Sweet Dreams video when I was young. I don't remember how old I was, but I was immediately struck by it and taken by it. Uh, but this is the days before the internet and before I had any sort of allowance where I could buy any music. So uh, I sort of knew that song and I knew that video, but I didn't really get into Eurythmics in a big way until around 1998 when it was this album, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, which was the first one that I bought. And then over that sort of summer, I bought all of their albums and really got hooked. Uh, so it's been maybe, you know, 24 years of hardcore fandom and some appreciation prior to that. Okay, so you're so you said you said you bought the Sweet Dreams album in what year? Did you say? 1998. So I had um, I had the the greatest hits uh, cassette, <laughs> and um, I know we've you've had a podcast talking about the compilations and how you know there are some good points and maybe some not so good points. And yeah, I think the the U.S. version of the greatest hits does not really do their discography justice. And uh, so I didn't wow. really get into that in a huge way. Um, but when I got the albums, uh, that is when I really became a, a, a huge fan of Eurythmics. All right, great. Okay. So it, it's, it's, it's weird because you're in Australia. It's, uh, we're recording this on Sunday night here and it's Monday morning for you. So we're doing some, I'm, I'm going to say we're doing some time traveling on this podcast. Yeah, you know? that's right. I'm coming to you from we're the future. <laughs> that's right. It is the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, your rhythmics were always futuristic and so are our podcasts. Yeah, that's right. So, so uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, which Annie and Dave were just inducted into uh, on Thursday night, this past Thursday night. And Ian, I know you have some interesting stats about their music and how it's become more popular, obviously, since the Hall Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Uh, so I should maybe also mention I'm a bit of a stats geek. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in statistics at a university here. So I've been tracking Eurythmic Spotify stream counts over the past four years or so. And ever since they were uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, their daily stream counts are higher than they ever have been. Uh, so I've been tracking these since wow. 2018. 
And uh, it's really good to see, you know, they're noticeably higher, their daily stream counts than they were. So they're averaging collectively around 767,000 streams per day on Spotify. Uh, and it's great to see either people reconnecting with the music after maybe not listening to it so much on Spotify for some time, or maybe some new fans discovering it, which would be wonderful. Yeah, that's I very exciting. I should mention if, if anyone, if anyone out there, and I know a lot of you did, uh, took part in the Eurythmics poll 101 and then an Annie Lennox poll that was done. And it was Ian who was the mathematical genius on how we could do all that and how you would take all and they'd end up. So we're not going to get into that, but um, that's how I became, I came to know Ian because he was the, he, he when he says he's into stats and math and <laughs> that's what uh, that's what I he really am. it's interesting Ian, uh, but Ian you said you know that when they were announced to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees uh, which uh, that you noticed it was going up and of course just a few days ago now the Songwriters Hall of Fame induction ceremony itself was held and they've got a lot of good press from that I mean they made the headlines. They sort of stole the show. And so it'll be interesting over these next few days if you see another spike uh, that's coming out of that. That's that the Songwriters Hall of Fame, of course, is not quite as famous as, say, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But like I said, they've got a lot of good press about that. What did you think, um, Rex, what, over the last few days and the performance and all that? Well, I mean, obviously, it's wonderful to see them together again, and it's great to see them get that recognition for the songwriting, which, you know, they were always recognized, I think, as being excellent songwriters in Europe because they, were, they um, you know, they received a number of Ivor Novello Awards in the 80s for, for writing those wonderful songs. But in the U.S., it was kind of like, you know, yeah, everybody, everybody likes Eurythmics and Annie Lennox, but there was never that kind of recognition. So to have that songwriting recognition first before hall of fame i think is great because it's sort of like it goes together it's like well these great songwriters are now being inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and for me personally that was always the thing about eurythmics that i loved the most is i when i first heard their songs the number one thing i thought was these are just great songs these are great two really great songwriters you know mm. and that's what it was about for me so to see them get that recognition here in the U.S. means a lot to me. And Mark, you were talking earlier about we, we feel like when they when they achieve a success, we all feel like we've we feel the same way for them. And it's true. I mean, we're not the artists, but we we're happy for them, and and you know we we cheer along with them, and, and it's sort of our victory tour, our victory as well. You know, <laughs> well, and, and I, I they think did all the work, but it's our victory as well. <laughs> I, I think a lot of us have felt like that when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction was announced that they had in fact uh gotten in and um and watching this and you know like i said they've got a lot of good press from this and we've all on the different fan boards you know we've seen the great photos coming from but that there's this one great photo i want to mention it just this one wonderful photo and annie's leaning up against dave and she's smiling and it's the most joyful picture and it, I think it's made a bunch of us smile, and a lot of us have posted it even on our personal pages, you know. And and it's 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 really, you just you just feel the warmth in that. You just feel like you know something really great has happened, and we're so happy for them. And it's like you said, we're a little bit happy 
as fans as well. You know, it just feels good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whenever I, they win an award, we feel like we've won. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really great as well, the songwriting aspect of it, because I think a lot of the attention that Eurythmics got over the years was for maybe the production quality as well as the image. And But underneath all of it, the reason why it was so successful and why it's had such a long legacy is because, as you've said, Rex, underneath it all are these really well-crafted songs. And that's what's made it stand the test of time, whereas, you know, these songs, many of them are coming up to 40 years old, but they still have vitality. They still have life because they're really well-written songs. So I think it's a very appropriate honor. And uh, yeah, as you've said, it's really, it feels like our victory as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, um, it's, they wrote all those fantastic songs. And like you said, they've, they've, they've lasted the test of time. And I just, the, the imagery that went along with it was like the icing on the cake for me. It's like, wow, these are such great songs. And now on top of this, we have these great videos, these great images, uh, this wonderful production, like you mentioned. I mean, it's, it was just the, it's the perfect pop package. I, frankly, I don't understand how not everybody in the world is into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, it, I think we're going to get into that today because that's the, I think this, our topic today is the sweet dreams are made of this album. And I think nothing encapsulates exactly what you just said, Rex, more than this album, the songwriting, the production, the totally different thing that anybody else was doing. I mean, and that's just a fact. No one else was doing this. They get kind of lumped into the wave of synth pop. Mm. And of course they were part of synth pop, but their synth pop didn't sound like anyone else's synth pop. It exactly. just simply didn't. Um, and I think that's what we're going to get into today. <laughs> I think so, uh, all about yeah, it. The, uh, when we talk about albums on the podcast, we usually go track by track. So um, the first single, on, well, it was a single, but I'm not going to say it's the first single. The first track on the album, Love is a Stranger. Ian. Why did uh, let, why don't you say something about "Love Is a Stranger"? Oh man, what a song! Hey, and and what a way to kick off this album. I mean, it's just immediately punchy, and as you say, as you've said, Mark, it's quite different. There are just so many elements going on, and what I think about this song and this album in particular, it really bears its fangs. So there's an aspect to this album which is really sort of uh it's got this conflict to it this sort of allure you know the song is about um how dangerous love can be which is maybe a bit unusual for a pop song at the time but it sounds dangerous too it just sounds daring um there's obviously those grunts i think it was maybe a chef or somebody who was doing those grunts that we are the uh you know during the song but it it, it just mm -hmm. really captures the the imagery of the of the lyrics quite well the production so um, obviously prior to this they had released two singles and I think they were really finding their sound and as well as finding their image um, but with this you really get that sense of that they stumbled upon something that was really unique and um, yeah really. Uh, 
captures that sense of conflict with what love and all 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 of its facets can be. Yeah. Well, and so the song has a very driving. It you know has a driving like a very driving thing to it. It's a do 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 do. You know. Yeah. And you know, and 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 love is kind of like that too. You know, it, it moves along like that. But it's interesting you brought up the grunts. You know, I think is that a reference to sex? Do you think? Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And you can see the imagery in the video as well. Obviously, um, Annie is dressed up um, in, in the in the limousine as uh, as a sex worker. Um, and you see, obviously, some of the imagery when she's in that, um, I don't know if it's a bathroom or whatever it is, where she's got the wig on and the, um, the scissors and everything. So obviously, I think there was a lot, that was a deliberate thing, that sort of sexual aspect to it as well. Um, so it's about you know, basically driving you insane, right? Um, the, the, obsess the obsessiveness of it. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, I, I think that's what I was trying to get to with, with the beat of the driving beat of the song. Yeah. It sounds obsessive. It feels, mm. it feels relentless, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and, and I think it's, it has the hallmark of a lot of other Eurythmic songs and Annie Lennox songs that would come that it, it starts off. And, and I think Dave's once talked about it, that it almost like a little toy piano, you know, you've got this little bit of, a crescendo from the keyboards and you're not really expecting the lyrics that come out of this and that, you know, the obsession. And I, I remember the first, uh, first time I heard it, actually I, I saw the video on Friday night videos or some such thing. And I remember, I think we probably talked about this in a podcast before, but I remember going back to school because all my close friends were into Eurythmics and, that, and culture club and all the stuff back in the day. And I was trying to explain it. I'm like and something and I didn't know what she was saying. I couldn't understand. I didn't quite know, you know, it's an obsession. And I, I thought she was maybe saying possession. I wasn't sure. But, you know, but it didn't matter because I was already like, OK, this is talking to me. Uh, what am I? What is this song? And who were the, I already knew Sweet Dreams and was really sort of already obsessed with it. And then this came along and pretty much cemented the obsession <laughs> for no no pun intended uh for me with eurythmics there i think we should mention that as well this was obviously released as a single prior to sweet dreams and although it had done better well, I, than the predecessors from that album um this is the house failed to chart and i think the walk got to maybe number 89 love is a stranger got a lot of i guess controversy at the time for the video um, but it only made number 54, I believe, in the UK. It was only after the success of the Sweet Dreams single that it was re-released and then became a smash worldwide. But, I mean, I, I don't frankly understand how it wasn't a smash right away. It's just so immediate, so biting, um, and it's just so easy to listen to and re-listen to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, I was in high school when that song came out. I remember one morning I was sitting in class and a gaggle of girls behind me were talking about MTV or something. And, and love is a stranger video came up and I just sat there with my ears perked. You know, I didn't turn around. I just quietly listened. And they were talking about how much they loved the song. And I'll never forget one girl saying, and I really love that part where she goes, you know, and love, love, love is a dangerous drug. And I've never forgotten that, you know, how so I always think I always think about that girl. I remember her name, Barbara Sankey. So Barbara, if you're listening, <laughs> you probably don't even remember you said that. <laughs> Isn't that strange? The things that you remember and pick up on. Yeah. And, 
and 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 somehow you 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 kept that in your mind all those years. That's, that's I also great. remember that I was wearing a Eurythmics button which fell off onto the floor, and she picked it up and said, "Did you lose this?" <laughs> all these, but memories. anyhow, okay. I think, but I mean, mentioning um, the way she sings words in this song, she really showcases all of the different aspects of what she's trying to communicate it's sleek and it's clever how, she, how she's delivering those w words and how she lets the j of jealous just you know sit there in her mouth and then it's hard to restrain you know that very sort of i don't know germanic mm -hmm. dominating sound so it's really got this you know diversity even in with the way she's delivering the lyrics and that's another aspect to this album is how I'm in the garden. I really love the vocals and how they're so um, sort of treated as if another instrument in the mix, but she really steps to the forefront um, on sweet dreams with her vocals being really a commanding presence. And this song I think is a prime example of that. Yeah. And in those lyrics, she says uh, savage too, you know, it's, it's savage <laughs> and it's sleek and it's, yeah. And I just, I find that interesting because, you know, later savage was an album title, you know, so. And song. Yeah. So, um, well, it, it, again, it goes back to, um, this was, like I said, that no one was doing what they were doing, but this song, I mean, this has no, uh, semblance to any other sort of song. It is not written, you know, like any other song, you know, the first two stanzas repeat themselves, and then there's a, and then this long litany of what love is. Uh, nobody, <laughs> you know, um, they were doing what they wanted to do, and mm -hmm. and making music, and this album really uh, showcases that just the you 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 feel the creativity that they had, but they because they didn't have anything else. You know, right. the tourists were gone. In the Garden was not successful. Uh, Annie was in despair. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, they had nothing else but whatever they were trying to do, and they they did it really well. Uh, and thank goodness people got to hear it because the music business, it would have been so easy for the record company to say, hey, we gave you, the, the, this is the house. We gave you the walk. We gave you love as a stranger. You really haven't been a hit. We're moving on. It could have so easily happened, so easily happened with Sweet Dream setting in some, you know, in their recording box and no one ever hearing it. That could have happened. That absolutely could have happened. Wasn't love as a stranger? Wasn't it sort of done, or maybe the video was done behind RCA's backs? I think it would. I don't know, uh, but I think I've read this somewhere that it the video was done. I think Jack Stephen maybe was one of their. The, uh, the people um, who was helping to uh, manage them at the time. I think that video was commissioned behind RCA's back. So that really speaks to that point you're saying, Mark, where it could have been very easy. I don't think RCA were pleased with the performance, the commercial performance of what had come prior. So it really did feel risky and like they were at their last tether of, of a chance. And, and boy, did they hit it out of the park. Exactly. Yeah, wow. You know, um, we've we've interviewed Steve Rapport, who's uh, photographed videos on, you know, was the set photographer on their videos in the early days and on that video as well. So he might have some insight about, um, you know, how that was filmed and, and if it was done on the sly and all that. So maybe I'll reach out to him and ask that. But we should probably move to our next song, which is I've Got an Angel. 
And um, I'll just say about this one, I just it's always been a very trance-like song for me. I just kind of put it on and and it it sort of transports me away to I don't know, it's just it's just it's kind of a cerebral thing and um Period. you know, angels and all that. Um but yeah, it's dark. It's, um, but it's dark too at the same time. You know, you get that yeah. there again, that dichotomy of all this yeah. stuff going on. Uh, time is time is time to kill and yeah absolutely can i i'm not always the best with uh lyrics so at the time and maybe it's the way that it's delivered as well toward the end i sometimes hear it's time to kill as opposed to time is time it's because that time is time is time to kill it can sometimes sound like time it's time it's time um Hmm. and yeah as as you were saying mark there's that real dichotomy there there's a really fascinating interview that I stumbled upon on YouTube a few years ago. Uh, and it was around the, it was just in the wake of the Sweet Dreams release. And it's, um, uh, it, there's some really great footage of Annie Lennox um, rehearsing with some of the background singers on the walk. And um, Annie was talking about sort of the album and how it has elements of soul and, and euphoria through so, sort of dance. But she also mentioned that, you know, that there were, and her word was evil, that there were evil elements uh, to it. And obviously I'm not saying that she's evil or they were evil, but I think there was certainly a darkness that came through. And this song, I think, really uh, communicates that because one other song about an angel sounds this sort of um, fraught with sort of danger, you know, and then sort of the power of imagination goes right through my head. You know, you're not quite sure if it's an angel for good or an angel for darkness. So it's really um, captivating <laughs> that way. Yeah. And you know, I have, you know, I have to say, I haven't, I hadn't thought about it that way, Ian. So now I'm thinking that, that this angel that she's got in this song is not a nice angel. It's probably a dark angel. Probably not, Yeah. Well, you know, maybe, you know, what's the, the cliche that, that we have on our shoulders, the, the good and the bad, you know? Maybe. But, I mean, and it's, it's it, is it the shortest song they've ever done? I don't know. Two minutes, 12 seconds, I think. Uh, it's a really, really short song. Um, and it was, am I right on this? The B-side? It's 2.45. It's got two, it's two minutes and 45 seconds. So two, it is certainly two, two, forty-five. You're right. Yeah. Where did I get 212? Something else is 212. Uh, but um, but it was the B-side, at least in the U.S., for Love is a Stranger. So I and when I was young, I bought the 45s or the 7-inch singles, as we would call them later. Um, so I had the Sweet Dreams single and I had the Love is a Stranger single. I didn't buy albums for probably until like 1985 before I started. Because I was, you know, I was a young teenager. I didn't have a lot of money, but you could go. You know, it'd be, it was easy to get your mom or dad or whatever to, hey, and this single is a dollar fifty or something. You know, they'd buy you that. But uh, so love is for. I mean, I've got I've got an angel was a song that I knew early on, but it's one of my favorite songs. Uh, absolutely, any point in the day, I can listen to I've got an angel, and the volume goes way up. Uh, and by the way, if you're listening, and you've never discovered the BBC live recording, go to YouTube, find that. They, they did a little concert for the BBC back in 82, and there's a few songs, and I've Got an Angel is one of them, and it's stellar. It is so good. 
<laughs> and, and let's say too, real quick, you know, that uh, when they performed it live, like on the Sweet Dreams video album, Live at Heaven, and we go back to, you know, what's going on in this song, but, you know, she and the backup singers are, you know, yelps and animal sounds and all these things. So it's a, it's, it's quite a, a, a short little song, but there's a whole lot going on in that song. <laughs> yeah, it starts out with those, that flute. I wonder if that's Annie playing there. I don't, I haven't seen any sort of instrument by instrument credits for this album, but we know that Annie, obviously she was trained as a, as a flautist, you know, at the Royal Academy and everything. So, and I know sometimes she I don't, would, I, I assumed, it, I always assumed it was her playing. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm certain it is because I think, again, you go back to nobody else for the great, they do have a few, but you know, they were doing most of this stuff. So I'm certain it was, uh, but, and she, and she does, she performs it. She, she does play the flute live for this song. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, I'm certain she played the flute on uh, lifted on peace. I'm sure that was. Uh, good on the flute. And you sort of, so, also, um, oh, sorry, just one last thing. If I want may about this. Uh, speaking of sort of that that darkness, I kind of wonder whether the circumstances of the recording might have had something to do with it, because um, this album, or I'd say most of it at least, was recorded in this warehouse, this picture framing warehouse, and they had to do their recording after hours, and they had to sort of suspend microphones down from the ceiling where they were stationed, and often it was pitch black, and it was sort of just torch lit. Um, where Annie would be at a piano or during her vocals and sort of just that ambiance. I wonder if that would contribute to sort of the, the feeling that goes into a song like that. I'm sure it does. Happy, it? I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. When they did have to record that and you, you have to be connected to the elements around you at the moment. So, yeah. well, I mean, and the whole album, you know, whole album is very dark. So I can see that, um, yeah, that was a big influence. I mean, I think they come from a naturally dark place sometimes anyways. So that coupled with the atmosphere produces wonderful art. <laughs> okay, the next song, Wrap It Up. Now, uh, Mark, why don't you start talk, start and say something about that one? Well, how interesting, and I have yet, I, I, I was thinking about this. I don't think I have ever heard um, a great deal of discussion from Dave or Annie about this particular song, which is a cover song. Sam and Dave did this, the group uh, did this song, of course. And so it's a cover song on Sweet Dreams. Again, it doesn't sound like anything else. They certainly put their own stamp onto it. Um, but after the tourist had had s such huge success, but they sort of thought it was uh, with... Um, the Dusty Springs, the Dusty Springfield song, um, I Only Want to Be With You. And they often talk about that it was sort of a curse because it got so big, but it really wasn't what they were about. And they had sort of done it on a lark. So part of me was always surprised that they even had a cover. Um, but I don't know if any of you have heard, but I don't think I've ever heard them talk why they did the cover, why they did this particular song. Um, and two... Uh, you know, there's some, you know, this was a, the time where Annie was uh, sort of getting pigeonholed as about her androgyny, or it was when Sweet Dreams at least came along. Um, and, you know, the lyrics, she didn't change the lyrics. The lyrics are, you know, um, from a man talking about a woman. 
she doesn't change it. You know, uh, she didn't, she didn't change it. She, you know, sometimes people, if it's, um, you know, a gender, they'll change it to whatever they're, but she's, she certainly did, didn't. And, you know, when she's singing, um, I'm going to treat you like the queen you are, you know, she, she didn't change that. And, um, so, um, that, but it never really got a lot of attention in that sense, but I think it could have easily, in fact, I think it should have been a single. I think that it could have been a single. Well, I think a lot of things on Sweet Dreams talk about that, I think could have been a single, but I love this song. I love everything about this song. It is, you know, a few, a few years later, the fabulous Thunderbirds had a big, a big hit with the cover of it. Oh, you're right. That's, uh, and you know, that was just like two or three years later. So it was, it was kind of like, uh, well, maybe not two or three, but maybe like five years later. But, um, I remember thinking, wow, it would be interesting if, if their version had been the big hit. <laughs> it, it didn't, and, and that didn't come anywhere close to being as, as good as this. And they did, uh, you know, the, so uh, they did perform it live. It was a fantastic live song. It was often the closing, the main closing song before Jennifer on the Sweet Dreams tour. And, uh, man, it was everything. I loved it. Ian, you want to weigh in on it? <laughs> I absolutely love, love, love this song. It's just so much fun. And, you know, mostly... I'd say the sort of the synth bass, those really heavy synth bass, mostly in the album it's used to sort of communicate this sort of darkness. But here it's just all about the fun. Um, It's just a real, it's a blast to listen to. I remember around the time that I got the album, I used to, I I went on a couple long road trips that summer um, and I would just crank this up and it was just the best for just going on that road. Um, and on the freeway, you know, high speeds, you know, obviously speed limit, but <laughs> high speeds on the freeway and just, um, yeah, blaring it as loud as possible. Speaking of the, yeah. I guess the choice, I think this album, and, and I think the choice of this song is quite significant because it's a soul song. And it really, you know, with the tourists, I think Dave and Annie had expressed their, you know, I mean, obviously they, they had a somewhat successful career and in fact, quite big success with I Only Want to Be With You. But they felt a little bit stifled with their own vision and their own creativity. And Dave and Annie have both talked long about their, you know, their the great influence they got from soul music. So choosing um, a Sam and Dave song, which was, I think, originally a B-side, I don't think it was a single or even potentially on an album at the time. I think that really, part of that was to communicate that they were inspired by soul music. And it it sounds completely different, um, but I think that's part of the reason. And the other thing I want to mention here, uh, Mark, you mentioned sort of the androgyny and, and the choice of not changing the lyrics. One other thing we should mention is that this song features Green Gartside, um, um, who's, who's sharing vocals with Annie. And what's always stood out to me here, and I know Annie has um, recoiled a bit against the gender bender um, sort of moniker, and I do think that's maybe a little bit simplistic, but Green Gartside's vocals sound a lot more demure. Um, so he's, the, he's, I think, the lead singer of Scritti Politti. Um, and he's, he sounds much more demure and cautious, whereas Annie's like, whoa, I just love your sexy way. You know, she's very much commanding. <laughs> and um, so I think that's another interesting aspect to this, where he was, you know, much more coy and demure, and, and Annie comes in and she's all booming, you know? So I think that's um, a key aspect to it as well. Yeah, another thing that strikes me about his voice is that it's not 
overly masculine. Yeah. Um, it almost blends in with hers really well. Sometimes you wouldn't even realize there's a, there's another singer there. So yeah, would... that, you know, so you have a, you have a female and a male singing a song from a man's point of view. <laughs> it's almost like I need a man before I need a man. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I, and I want to say too, I just, I love the, uh, I always kind of, think of them in my head as the laser bolts, the music at the beginning, the, pum, 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 you know, yeah, just, yeah. and just, it just gets you into it from the yeah. get go. Ultra 80 yeah. sounds of like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I just, and you know, I have to say as dated as that could sound 40 years later, it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I there are a lot of eighties computer gimmicks that sound dated now, but not the stuff Eurythmics did, you know, and I, and I, I, not to say they did gimmicks. I'm just saying, you know, there were definitely gimmicky eighties kind of synthesizer sounds. They didn't use those and, and their stuff still sounds fresh, I think. Yeah. So what's okay, the next song? I could give you a mirror. This should have been a single. I have no idea why it was a B-side. I have no idea it should have been a single after Love is a Stranger. It should have been the third hit single. I will never, ever understand why it was a B-side. Y'all can talk now. <laughs> I, used to, I used to play it to whenever I was mad at somebody. I would play it very loud and, uh, you, know, you know, and send the message, you've disappointed me. Look in the mirror. Anyhow. I'm going to have to be careful if he ever sends me that song. I've made him mad. He's, he's come... <laughs> no, it was mostly for people that wounded my heart. Oh, okay. Well, that won't be me then. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, it's, uh, of course, there's a, a great alternative version as the B-side to the UK Sweet Dreams, but the US had the um, album uh, uh, version. But and still, you know, I'm thinking that, and, and, and one actually does wonder, no, did it say it was an alternative mix on yes, the B side? It, it does. Okay. Yeah. So, but um, and and this is again not like any. I think this song, as much as any other song on there, is again so different than what any other synth pop was doing. It's so rich what they were doing. Um, they they layered this stuff with so much, and they did it while recording on an eight track. You know, they they there's so much going on, and there's so much layering to that. But that it's such a great song. How is it not a single? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. This might be a little complex for American radio. <laughs> this is absolutely one of my favorite eurythmic songs i think last time i did a list and here's that stat geekery coming in i think it was my sixth favorite (laughs) eurythmic song and just the way it comes in with that booming octave stepping synth you know we we obviously get some of that with sweet dreams as well this one is just so biting you know it really matches those lyrics as well uh quite well with the uh, you know, I could give you a mirror to show you disappointment. It's like Annie, you know, she, she was going to be on the dance floor, but she was going to be seething on the dance floor. It's just so cutting. Um, and you mentioned the alternative mix, which adds that sort of that interesting contrast because the lyrics are still the same, but it sounds much dreamier. It almost kind of mm-hmm. reminds me in that sense of, as like a prequel of Do You Want a Breakup from Savage, where you've got these sort of lyrics but the, the music is stands in such contrast to it sounding quite happy in a sense 
I think the same thing sort of happens with this alternative mix of I could give you a mirror where the music sounds really inviting and kind of gentle and, and um, poppy in places, but the lyrics are still as cold and cutting as ever. So it adds sort of its unique edge. But um, the album version of I Could Give You a Mirror, if I think about, you know, songs by Eurythmics, and especially early on, that would bear their fangs, and this is it. It's just phenomenal. Agreed. And, and you know, I, I, I just have to point out, this is the third time during talking about Sweet Dreams, the album, that we've mentioned Savage and how something <laughs> reminds us of Savage. First, it was Savage in the lyrics. Then it was me saying, you know, that that um, um, Green and, and, and Annie, you know, was sort of the forerunner to I Need a Man in terms of the, you know, the, you know, the kind of, you know, the image of it and the whole thing. And now this, you know, with you talking about... Um, savage so that's interesting and it's such a dark album and so is savage so and it, it's it's got the hallmark uh this song the hallmark of a lot of eurythmic songs where by the end of it uh, by the end of i could give you a mirror everything and anything is going on layers of lyrics they're pounding on each other the music is pounding on and there's this you know there's a crescendo going and they and they do that a lot. They do that a lot with their certain songs, but this one is, you know, it's it's. I don't know if it's the first one. I, I think so. I mean, nothing on in the garden quite went to that level, but yeah. I mean, and, and but it's a hallmark for them, and even for Annie Lennox, she does that. A little bird, you know, is a little of a bit of a crescendo at the ever this stuff is mm -hmm. coming together. So and. Um, it would it probably would have been a weird kind of thing for radio with the with that going on but it it's it's, it's exciting it's building up and then crash it's done <laughs> yeah the way it ends is right. really striking and also i think it's it's worth mentioning that key change because we've mentioned how biting the lyrics are and then it goes higher with that key change almost as if to communicate you know she's even more enraged by the audacity of whoever this song is about, um, you know? So yeah. I, it just really does build and build and build with the key change. And then that crescendo you mentioned at the end, and then just slamming the door at the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so the next song is the walk. And uh, the first thing I want to say about that is I just love that, uh, the trumpet in it. It's a trumpet, right? <laughs> mute, I think it's a um, muted trumpet. Yeah. Yeah. That's where they put the, that, that's where they put the thing into the, into the well of the. <laughs> yeah. This is where is it'd that... be good to have Dave Stewart and not me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, uh, I don't know what it's called, but yeah, I, I know yeah. what you're saying. Yes. You see that a lot in jazz and stuff. And, um, but that was, that's my favorite thing about the song. And I, even in the, in, in the liner notes, it mentions, they call it their favorite trumpet solo or something like that yeah yeah i think that's um, an interesting point where where mark was saying how you know they were synth pop but they were different and i think the incorporation of all sorts of different instruments i mean it was their creativity at, at, at play and and i think the circumstances around the creation of this album certainly lent themselves to that but the incorporation of all of these instruments with that muted trump uh trumpet solo and yeah, I think um, it really does give it this um, unique feeling. And man, what a feeling does this song have. It's so alluring. It's really sort of foggy and, you know, soaked in mystery. Mm -hmm. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Um, that could have been the song on Nine and a Half Weeks that, that, that broke out as well, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, that is a good way. I like that description. Uh, and I, another thing that I like about it is its title, um, The Walk. Not walk, not walk away, some of the lyrics. The Walk, and I'm very fascinated by that. I'd love to know the reasoning. There are so many things, so much of the minutia that I would love to know and ask these, those kind of questions, but that they title it that, and that they had an earlier version of it called Let's Just Close Our, Our Eyes, which is probably, for me, probably I prefer it in a way, uh, although it's hard for me to say that because they're totally different. Some of the same lyrics, except the, the chorus is different, but uh, and we'll talk about that maybe on another podcast. But um, it, it's, you know, and of course it was one of, it was the second single from Sweet Dreams. So, uh, and had, and did you discover the video, Rex? Was that, that it finally came out? You well, uh, no, what happened was it was back in 2005 and it, it just showed up on the internet one day. The, the director of the video, uh, I believe the man's name was Marek Budinski or, I'm sorry, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but um, he uploaded it and or somebody that he knew uploaded it. And yeah, nobody had ever seen it before. Nobody even knew it existed. It was just a complete shock and surprise to everybody. And uh, I contacted him and he gave a short interview for my website back in 2005, right. um, which is still on there if, if anybody is interested and wants to go read it. Um but uh, yeah, he talked about how it was just uh, it was filmed uh, outside of a uh, like a like a brewery, and you can even see the you know the the kegs of beer as they're walking along, you know. And one thing that strikes me about that video is that you can tell that they were still getting their le their video legs, you know. Um, <laughs> her movements are awkward, um, you know. She doesn't have the confidence that she shows in later videos, and I really think that's probably why we didn't see it. You know, they probably just didn't think it was up to snuff. But it's so interesting as a, you know, just to see it as a, like a time capsule of what was going on and their first attempts, one of their first attempts at video. Um, well, what and, the and the director, um, the director knew Sophie Muller. They went to uh, to uh, art school together. So they came up together in, in, in art school. And so he knows he knew Sophie. And I, I don't know how that I don't think that he was involved in with getting Eurythmics together with Sophie Muller later, but um, they definitely work together and know each other. All the connections are always fascinating to that. But yeah. I think this song is, has another theme that is prevalent in on the sweet dreams album and is prevalent in Eurythmics music and is prevalent as well in Annie's solo stuff, but it's loneliness uh, and the discussion of that. And, and uh, she, even, you know, the kind of, you get a sense of what Annie does when she's trying to collect herself and she's talking about walking on pavements, you know, uh, looking inside herself, she breaks the glass. You know, there's just, um, but you, you feel that sort of, you know, despair a lot. And I think she was feeling a lot of this stuff at the time that she was trying to find herself, she was trying to find success and, um, and I think they felt really sort of, you know, on them, yeah. you know, really disturbed and, and, you know, trying to, you know, would any of this work? And you you feel that in songs like this. Yeah, I definitely. Think that's a, a really good sort of precursor in a way for This City Never Sleeps. And I think we can talk later on at the end how I think the album is sequenced in a way where the two sides kind of have a similar sequencing-ish. 
Uh, but you get that sense that, you know, they were not really quite super famous at that time. And I think their sort of experiences really molded this album. Yeah, Sleep in the House is so alone. And, you know, we have obviously know that Annie has battled depression and loneliness over the years and, you know, during the recording of this album as well. And so that definitely is in there. And it's it's communicated with the lyrics and with the sort of the sound as well. Um, and I think this is another one, Mark, where it sort of ends with not so much a crescendo, but we've got that let's just close our eyes and, and then I just will get myself. It just falls into this so elegantly, this sort of cyclical sort of alluring thing toward the end where she just keeps repeating, let's just close our eyes as I'm just forget myself goes on at the same time. And it just, it almost feels like a, a siren song for me, just sort of, it's so alluring and so seductive yeah. and so palpable. Yeah. I want to just say you brought up, uh, I was going to say, it's interesting you brought up um, This City Never Sleeps because that's what I mentioned earlier. The walk almost could have worked as well in that, mo in that movie where the scene, you know, it, it, they're both similar kind of the atmosphere in the songs are, are similar. And um, it's interesting that, yeah, you tied that together with the ends of the albums. That's, that's and, and it's also, you, you with your podcast with Dave, he said that he felt sort of a duty to provide that sort of atmosphere because Annie's voice commanded it. And boy, did he right. ever deliver. <laughs> I sense that's I, what you wanted to say, Mark. <laughs> that, was, that was my, that was a favorite part of our interview with Dave uh, where he brought that up and it was, it was really insightful that he, he felt, you know, that they, he had an obligation almost to make sure that the music leading up to something was as good as her, and and in her, she is the best instrument in all of these songs, uh, and songs, and and he's always made sure, and she's always made sure that her voice is heard. And you know, you you hear a lot of songs where you don't hear her voice, we not her voice, but you don't hear the voice of the singer as much as you should. It gets drowned out by the music. That never happened. And it was that was a really great part of that interview with Dave. But one thing I wanted to say was the live, if, if, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, go to the YouTube right now, search for the Old Grey Whistle Test, The Walk Live, and it's with a gospel choir. It's my favorite live performance by Eurythmics of anything they've ever done. It's just that good. And of course, they, they did the gospel version on the video album with This City Never Sleeps. Um, and so I, I've always wondered, too, did they record that because the walk isn't even on the live performance? I wonder if they also did um, a gospel version at the church that was going to be part of the video album. And again, I go back to these things that we do not know. But, you know, there are songs that were in their set list that are not on that video album. So could they go back at this point when we, we always talk about these the video albums, the, the Sweet Dreams the video album is one you actually can stream. You can find it and stream it. But somewhere, you know, there is there are other tracks that were left off the video album that could be added back. And did they do uh, the walk with the gospel choir? But again, if you've not heard it, go to YouTube, find that performance where she, Annie Lennox, is just so good and commanding on that stage 
The piano is outrageously good. The choir is so good. Every single thing. I don't know. I may be the only one here, but that performance is no, it's a, so it is a great I, w- I would definitely say check it out. All right, let's move on to Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, which is the next song. <laughs> what can people say about Sweet Dreams Are Made of This? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if there's a lot to say that we haven't already said and that everybody already knows. But, of course, everyone, most people were introduced to Eurythmics with this song. Some people were lucky enough to know In the Garden before Sweet, Dream, before Sweet Dreams came out, like my partner. But I think most people figured uh, discovered Annie this way and... Ian, you were talking about the music video earlier that just uh, yeah, really, I'll, really I'll just really show you. Obviously, this is an audio podcast, but we can see each other when we're recording it. I've got a Polaroid of when I was 19 years old. Now my hair isn't orange here, but I did it orange. I was so inspired by the imagery, and I think this is something that unites all Eurythmics fans: is that their music played such an important and formative role for us. So I had gone through a time where I struggled, sort of. With my childhood, just with my, you know, I felt like I was a bit of an odd duck, which I am, but hey, I'm so ce- I'm happy to celebrate it now. But I think it's that the strength of sort of being uncompromisingly me, I took a lot of that from Annie Lennox and her appearance in the Sweet Dreams video. So the next summer after I had bought the album, I was like, you know what? I, I'm not satisfied with my look anymore. I, you know, you got this buzz cut as short as Annie and I dyed my hair various colors, and and one one of the times I dyed it her bright bright orange, and to the point where you know when, when I went back to university, my Spanish teacher introduced me as the new student, nuevo estudiante, and it really did feel like a new me, like I had found, well I I had embraced what was always there about my personality, uh, but it, I took so much strength in that. And you hear story after story of Eurythmics fans, including yourselves, and how the music had such an indelible impact on the formation of your identity. Well, man, this was it for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that brings something new to Sweet Dreams that we haven't heard before. So that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like that. I mean, that that is good. Um, but you know, I think you know, you go back to to just the music on it, and Dave has done this before, where he's broken it down. In recent years, and 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 show and and showed you, you know how they made it, and how it's this layer upon this layer upon this layer, uh, and um, and that it was almost a mistake, you know that you know it was this boom, but it caught Annie's attention, and she was, you know, the whole story of that song that she was ready to when they wrote it, she was ready to give up, she was going back to Scotland, and suddenly boom literally a boom that dave made sort of by mistake of that you know happening at the end uh, at the beginning and um you know sweet dreams are made of this i've said it before it had all the hallmarks of a one-hit wonder uh you know it it it, it was catchy as all get out uh repeatable lyrics uh, and, and annie talks about in the sense that you know it's sort of a mantra and it's not it has no no connection to any s- typical songwriting, you know. And I don't even know if they thought, I think they thought this is really good, but the record company wasn't sure because well, this is kind of strange. But, um, you know, a it's A song not, without a chorus. <laughs> but, yeah. you know... Or the whole song is a chorus, actually. The, st- the statistician here m- could possibly tell me, <laughs> you know, yeah, how I mean, many times... 
I've listened to this song and how many times people, you know, because it just, it can play endlessly for me. And it just is, it's just, it's so much part of me. It's the first, it's the first song that I've really identified with um, as a pop song. I had was, you know, I, there were country music and I, I knew things like um, uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and these kind of things. But when my brother ran into the room and he had recorded it off the radio a little bit because we were, you know, obsessive with recording things with our little uh, Panasonic tape recorder. And he had recorded it off the radio and he said, you've got to hear this. And I was really sort of obsessed at the time with um, uh, orchestral things and, and theme songs and things from television that had these great uh, orchestral and and even that kind of weaved into that for me. So it was a weird thing. I, I distinctly, re- I, I, it, it's like when you were talking about the the student, the others in your class that you remember that. But I, I see it. I remember it so distinctly that my brother he sat down in the bedroom floor and he played it, and I see it till this day. And and it hit me, and I, I had. I'd not seen the video. I didn't know what they looked like. I had no idea. It was that music. It was the music. It was not the video. It wasn't anything. It was whatever was coming out of that cheap little tape recorder, and it sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're right, though. It did have all the hallmarks of a one-hit wonder. I kind of thought it might have been a one-hit wonder, um, so was very pleased when that wasn't the case. Well, it could so easily have been because the the fickle public wants things like that. They don't want to give you another chance, but they were so good at what they did. They weren't, well, it goes back to what we said at the beginning of this. They were really good songwriters, and thankfully they were. Uh, And they were able to say, wait, wait just a minute. We're going, hey, we've got this for you too. And hey, we've got this, and we've got this. And it went on and on and on. But it, it could have so easily gone the other way. Yeah, that's been, all right. Let's move to Jennifer. Unless Ian, you have something. I have some interesting stats on this one, but, but I'll, before that, okay, I yeah. wanted to say something that about the the song itself is that I don't think many people, us as fans, would probably know this, but I don't think many people for a song that's as huge as it is, and I'll get to that in a moment. I don't think people realize that in the production that you can hear, uh, you know, during the sort of instrumental section, you hear this beat. And Dave had said at the time, they couldn't afford a clap trap. So what you are hearing there, those sounds are Annie and Dave banging picture frames against the warehouse wall. Like that is incredible to me that in a song that sounds so high tech, that this is what you're getting, you know, and this maybe comes a bit from that Connie Plank thing where, you know, don't, where, who worked with them on In the Garden and how they could just use anything uh, and how you're hearing that. And like yeah. during the hold your head up and you hear that little tinkling sound that that is actually varyingly filled milk bottles. Right. That on a song right. that is so, you know, iconic and sounds so futuristic that it's making use of, you know, non-traditional things. I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely extra- extraordinary. Now, if I, if I want to mention the stats for a moment, you say it's it, it, absolutely they're not one-hit wonders, but Sweet Dreams um, is one of the most dominant songs of the 1980s. So I believe it is the 11th most streamed song of the 1980s on Spotify of the entire decade. 
and wow. it is the 18th most viewed mu music video on YouTube of Spotify. And if I want to sort of compare its long-lasting impact, um, what I can compare it to, you know the Wham! song, Last Christmas? That song um, yeah, has yeah. become a recurring holiday hit. And over recent years, it regularly charts. I think it even topped the UK chart. Uh, and I, I think the past couple of years, it's made the top 10 in the US. Well, it obviously has sort of a seasonal effect in its sort of streams and views. But it sort of always goes back and forth with Sweet Dreams. So uh, once, I guess, the uh, you know the holiday season finishes, it pulls ahead of Sweet Dreams. But throughout the course of the year, Sweet Dreams pulls ahead and passes it. So the long-lasting <laughs> impact of Sweet Dreams is such that its streams are tantamount to having like a top 10 hit every single year. That is oh. all an enduring song, an enduring impact. It is going to last forever. Yeah. I, I never, I never knew when I was struggling in school just to get through my statistics class how great stats were until you came along here <laughs> and could talk about stats like this about Sweet Dreams. Now, that would have been interesting in my stats class. <laughs> uh, I, I, I put rhythmics and stuff and, and other musical things I like in my stats classes. I do put these pop culture references because I think it is often considered sort of a dry subject. But if I can put a bit of my other interests in there, um, I think it gives that sort of human side to it as well. And, and yeah, so, yep. <laughs> cool. Very right, cool. So let's move on to Jennifer. Um, Mark, start say something about Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer, the song. You know, again, you know, it's a lengthy song, but um, not a lot of lyrics, not a lot, you know, but man, there's a lot going on. So atmospheric. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you get a sense of, again, loneliness and despair. And, you know, is it a, is it a suicide song? I think there's lots of discussion on that or about death. Uh, and it was a great song that ended the concerts. You know, Jennifer. Um, I think it is a song about suicide or a girl contemplating suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and underneath uh, the water, you know. Yeah, the last bit underneath the water, and you know, and uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little poem, just a little poem, and what they did with it, you know, that starts out with the sounds of the ocean, so you get that water. Um, and they they actually used part of the Never Gonna Cry Again video. In the Sweet Dreams video album, where they were where they're performing Jennifer, and they use part of that where she's in the water and she's gone out into the ocean, um, you know. And uh, do do we know do we know what the song is it is it influenced by anything? Has she talked about it? it seems like maybe she did, but uh, oh, I, I, maybe Sylvia Plath or something like that. I it's, it's it's an integral part of the Sweet Dreams album. You can't think of this album and not think about. The song Jennifer. Um, mm. I don't think so. You, you all. Yes. I think I've heard she's she chose the title just because of the rhythm of the word of the name and how it sounds. I think I have heard her say that. I haven't heard much beyond that, but just it is sort of a beautiful sounding name. And I think that was um, one other thing I really love about this song is the imagery with the color choices. Right. 
with your orange hair, with your green eyes, with, in your dress of deepest purple. Now, you know, color geek Ian, <laughs> I learned that those were secondary colors, right? And so I wonder if that choice is deliberate, that choosing secondary colors might have been maybe an explanation for whatever her demise is, right? That maybe she was feeling secondary. Um, but I, I think there was certainly a reason why, um, you know, she had green eyes and was wearing a purple dress as opposed to other colors. I think that, you know, that provokes really strong imagery and, you know, the amateur color theorist that I am, the secondary colors there always stood out to me. And as well as well, Dave's yeah. guitar solo at the end, my gosh. Dave's guitar solo oh, yes. and is such a perfect eulogy. It is so guttural and visceral. And man, this song, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people deride synth pop as very cold and humanless. Um, but man, I'll put this song up to anyone who would dare claim that it's in, you're incapable of evoking strong emotional resonance with um, the use of synthesizers. Because this is oh yeah, definitely powerhouse. I think, I think the, the ultimate example of that is probably "Here Comes the Rain Again." Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I think with the lyrics too, and the orange hair, and of course, she was so immensely famous of course at the time for the color of her hair you know so it, it added another element to it to where you're like okay wait a minute is she talking about herself and i don't necessarily think right. she is and, and she could be but i mean it added that other element to it because it's not like you know a lot of people with orange hair and she's talking about this person this other woman called who called jennifer who has orange hair and so it you know, again, it's just a few words, just a few words that make up the entire song. And there's, it's a lot going on in just a little bit of words, but great song. Great song. It is. It is. Okay. So this is the house. Bump, bump, I'll, I'll, start by, I'll start with that one. Um, I was always intrigued by the, the Spanish speaking in it because um, um, even though I was adopted, I grew up in a, in a Spanish multilingual household. So that, kind of pricked my mom's ears when she heard este es el cerro, you know, <laughs> and things like that. And, and she was like, she, I remember she walked into the room. She's like, what are you listening to? <laughs> but that, um, that 12 inch, that 12 inch single cover. Wow. I just love that. That's one of my favorite images on one on their singles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it is. And, 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 and their complete confidence in, you know, using other languages and whatever Eurythmics were going to do. And what an interesting first single from that album. That's the first thing that they put out, backed with, you know, live tracks from In the Garden. And um, and it's um, it's a favorite song for a lot of fans, too. It's uh, it's it's one that they that they go back to. And again, I think there's great imagery in it. Uh, and the way that she does the vocalizations, um from it, the black and white. Oh yeah, this is your picture. It's in black and white. Um, the, so do you do you think it's about domestic violence? You know, um, there's a there's a smoke trail. There's discord. There's laughter and love, and you know. Well, the remnants of something. So I think you know the rust and the dust and that the sort dust of thing. and the rust and yeah and 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 an invisible smoke trail and it's all very ominous sounding like, like, like something didn't turn out well in our, in a relationship, you know, 
which seems to be a common theme on the album, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I was going to say, here we are again. And we're talking about, you know, the uh, the ominous uh, parts of a song that doesn't really come, it doesn't certainly doesn't start out that you think you're going to, you know, it's that it's going to be ominous or this ominous lyrics. It kind of starts out kind of perky. Right. <laughs> Again, the dichotomy of all this stuff. You you know, you have this going on, and then when you hey, will you pay attention to this? Oh, there's something else going on here too. Hmm. I think Ian? that delivery. Yeah, the chronology yeah. of it is really interesting because this is obviously their first release since In the Garden, and this is again where I think Annie her vocals really step up to the forefront, and this song also really steps onto the dance floor. So it's really, if we think about Sweet Dreams, uh, I really think about it as a journey of an album. It really is kind of a series of milestones as they were discovering and forging their, I would say, you know, signature sound. Um, I think this is a very significant step there. Uh, going to the, the imagery of the lyrics, I kind of always interpreted it as maybe you can't really go, go back home again. Like it's... Uh, from your, your home life and how nothing there but the dust and the rust, everything changes. Maybe it's your hometown um, because, you know, obviously in the 80s, things weren't obviously great worldwide. And so uh, maybe closing down of manufacturing, things like that. It, it sort of felt like uh, things aren't what they used to be. You can't really go back to it um, yet. Hmm. I, th I think you've hit it on the head. That That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and now that you've explained that, I, I totally agree with that. It, it is, I think, it is about going home and seeing those empty shells of, <laughs> of houses that have turned to ruin, which she revisits later on, uh, you know, on the Revenge album. But I, I know I get that feeling when I go back to my hometown. Um, you know, um, it's like there are ghosts everywhere, ghosts of the past everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. You, that's... Wow, thank you for helping me see that in a different light. Well, that's what's, great. what's great about your podcast is, you know, it's given me so much to think about. And I think it's really excited the community and everybody sharing sort of their own perspectives and takes on different songs. It's just fantastic. Well, I think we it's something about my personality that I automatically assume everything is dark. You know, oh, there's a smoke trail. Somebody must have shot somebody. And <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think the important thing is that we want people and we want from the get go for this on this podcast and Brex and I have always said this, you know, we are not presenting ourselves as necessarily as experts. We're just presenting ourselves as, you know, other fans who interpret these things. We all interpret these things in a different way, uh, almost universally. And what I want people to do is to have conversations about all this and when we post them and to talk about them in the comments and, and tell us what they think. Because no one is wrong in how they interpret these th these songs, because it, it is very personal and what you specifically get out of it. And what's exciting about it is, you know, that we can all get something different, just like we just did. So that's the exciting thing for me. Yeah, that, that exactly. See this differently. Um, you hit it right on the head. That's, that's the exciting thing. That's what excites me. It's like, wow, that's so cool. The, you know, another perspective. And someone just posted on uh, one of the Facebook uh, uh, pages, I don't remember which one, just two or three days ago, I think, uh, that there was a remix that has, a recent remix that has been done, kind of a, I think, almost kind of a house mix of This Is The House. But again, you go back to, you know, this is a song that is 40 years old, and someone is still remixing these songs and 
that's that's the fun thing. So we should go on to somebody told me, which yes. is the track. Um, now, didn't Roger Daltrey cover this song? He did. He did. Yeah, yeah. Didn't absolutely. That. In the, yeah. in the in the early to mid '80s, yeah, not long after it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did it on his own version of it, um, which is exciting. And um, you, you really can't get. I, I love this song again, uh, but I, I don't think you can get better than the live version of this. Sometimes because it, and it doesn't necessarily differ a great deal, but there's such power in it, and that oh no. Uh, I know, you know, and then she just at the end on uh, you, you, you can look up almost any early version of this live, and you know, and and so how's she going to end it? Because sometimes it was, you know, really crashing down on. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a killer track, killer. Yeah, one of my favorites off the album, definitely. Um, Ian, what do you think? Yeah, I I love it as well, and this is another one where I think you can really trace the uh, the evolution of their sound. There is an alternate version that showed up um, recently. I don't know how long it was um, on YouTube, but this is another one where it's it sounds a little bit um, I don't want to say lighter weight because it's not lightweight, but it doesn't have quite the fangs and the menace of that synth bass and the low. Somebody told me. You know, so it. I think it's another one where they put out a perfect. Well, they recorded a perfectly competent version, and then thought, you know what? Let's let's actually put something else into this um, to make it really, really dark. And yeah, it really. We we don't know obviously what this sort of rumor is or what it is that she's heard that cre- creates such a strong response from her. But man, it must have been something quite uh, extreme, given given the way it sounds and the way she sings it. Well, you know, yeah. when the song the song came, you know, I was in high school when it came out, so it it fits perfectly well into that angst of high school, you know, with um, you know, mm-hmm. somebody told me that you what, you know, and and especially being you know um, a, a gay kid growing up, you know, back then it, there was a lot of. You know, you, you couldn't be as, as out as kids are today. So this song to me was almost like, um, felt like, you know, like if, if, if I were the subject of the song, I was being outed or something, you know, like somebody told me something about you, you know, actually, I kind of thought of it as a song about maybe a girl who was dating a guy and she found out he was gay. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. See, again, you know, I think there's songs are very personal and you find connections to them. But uh, and I think that's, you know, it's it's interesting. She she sort of explores it again on the touch album, Paint a Rumor. You know, she's mm-hmm. there's something about rumors and people saying things that, you know, there's some sort of connection again that she gears uh, gears to or, or goes well, to. Same with with Jennifer. I mean, the in Aqua, you know, it's take me to the take me to the water you know, take me to the river. Throw me in the water, fall up, fall up, you know, and it's like there's again that imagery with somebody drowning, somebody deliberately drowning, you know. Yeah, uh, but uh, really, and, and I think go back to something that Ian said earlier how both sides of the album have this sort of um, it, there's a little bit of a connection to, to the first track on each side and then how they kind of go. And it kind of leads us up to this city never sleeps, which would be the uh, side two version of uh, alternate version of the walk. But this city never sleeps. Um, 
you know, which is is has its own life on uh, that's from not a single. I think it it does well. You'll probably talk about statistics here, Ian. But I think it's that. Uh, but uh, how it's so atmospheric. And again, we go back to uh, you know the loneliness. And I don't know that anything on the album explores this quite as much as this. You know, walls so thin, I can almost hear them breathing and if i listen in i hear my own heart beating you know the the uh inescapable um the uh you just enclosed you know you can't you can't get out of this um yeah this it's loneliness and um all that is encapsulated in that song i think maybe it's a song about her first her first experiences in in london when she went when she ran away from home and and I mean, I know I've been through that when I when I first ventured out from home and I lived in some some apartments with some pretty thin walls. So and thin ceilings. So I know what she's talking about there. But, yeah, that constant sound of the underground and, and it, it's very it, there's a sense of loneliness. She probably maybe, maybe she felt alone. She was going through all that stuff at the Royal Academy that and so maybe she felt even more. Uh, well, you know. you've, you've got that, that, you know, there's so many people living in this house and I don't even know their names. Yeah. And and uh, that's very much of a modern world kind of thing that mm-hmm. we don't know neighbors. We don't know people down the hall if we're in a Yeah, in a li- there are literally people on the other side of the wall from us and we don't even know what they look like or even what, they, what their names are. Yeah. But she can hear them talking. She can hear yeah. them breathing, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But what are the stats about this, Ian? I know uh, all right. So um, the stats on this are that this, we've mentioned, you've mentioned, I think, specifically, Mark, certain songs that you think would have made great singles. This is actually what I think is a lost hit or could have been a lost hit for them. Um, both on Spotify and YouTube, this outpaces several decently performing Eurythmic singles. And I know the feature in Nine and a Half Weeks certainly played its part, but it only played its part because the song works so well at evoking those sorts of feelings. But if I can give you some stats here, This City Never Sleeps has more streams on Spotify than songs like You Have Placed a Chill in My Heart, 17 again, Beethoven, I've Got a Life, The King and Queen of America, Never Gonna Cry Again, and so forth. It's got more views on YouTube than most of these songs as well. It is, but other than Winter Wonderland, which sort of has its own, I guess, life as a holiday song, This City Never Sleeps is by far, by far their most streamed slash viewed song uh, that was not released as a single um throughout their entire career and that is so fascinating and i think it it, and it you can actually look at the stats of things as well because sometimes and, and you see this a bit with jennifer where on spotify jennifer has quite a strong performance relative to the other album tracks but this city's never sleeps is even higher sometimes you might get a bit of a drafting effect whereby you have a song that performs really hugely like Sweet Dreams, and because Jennifer follows it, it's going to soak up some follow-on streams if someone's just put on the album. But mm-hmm. This City Never Sleeps has more than twice the streams of um, This Is The House and Somebody Told Me. So it's not, a, it's not sort of drafting. It has certainly spiked. And I think it's because it's just so evocative, this song. As you mm-hmm. said, Rex, I think it chronicles her time 
in London. And let's just talk about the genius of Day's production here. Yeah. That yeah. melody, that there's just something so striking and evocative about that. To me, it really communicates just sort of the grit and the grind of that daily grind where you're just going about it, living by the meagerest of margins, but you have something compels you to keep going and it repeats throughout the song. And there's just sort of that, it's it's captures that monotony because it continues throughout the song, but it's just so evocative. And Annie's vocals as well. Like I always get this imagery. All their songs give me strong imagery, but this one in particular gives me this imagery of her sort of wailing into sort of a, a rainy midnight sky at night where she goes in the city, cities and the cities get quieter and quieter. And it just feels like it's just echoing out there. Like just this call. Mm. Uh, it's just yeah. extraordinary. And if we're talking about, you know, this would be one of my top five Eurythmic songs. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And it's one that they revisited with, you know, live performances I've been obsessed lately with uh, a live version that appears on the Here Comes a Rain Again 12-inch. There's another version of it that was released on the live 1983 to 1989 album. And Dave mentioned it in your podcast how, you know, you could just play that intro for five minutes and the crowd would go nuts. And it's mm. true. It's just so atmospheric and it's got such a strong signal. And I don't think it's only nine and a half weeks because I think, for instance, the last time, I think that featured in the movie Outrageous Fortune, which was its own sort of success. And while that song also does relatively well on its album, it's not to the degree that The City Never Sleeps is. So I think there's something in it that is really connected with people. I think, That's if, I think if, if, if they do tour again, and, and Dave is really pushing that, he's talking about touring and that they need to tour, uh, it's you know going to be up to Annie, of course. But I, I hope what they do, if they decide to tour in, in any case, is that they revisit some of these songs. And they actually did on their 2000 tour where it was just Dave and Annie, and they went out and they did perform this. So they have done that before, but I hope they go back and because it's such a strong song live. But, you know, we've got to the end of 10 great tracks on this iconic album, you know, and mm. it... it Take us all that long to, to get through the 10 tracks. Uh, and it's just, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's sometimes they, they moved on and to the, all their other songs and we moved along with them. And sometimes you go back and you, 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 you uh, re-listen to Sweet Dreams and you, you realize just how important it was. It, 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 it's a weird thing because it, it was so important, but it almost gets overshadowed sometimes because of the greatness of touch and the greatness of Be Yourself Tonight and, right. and all the things that happened afterward. It's so easy to just say, yeah, that's the album where Sweet Dreams Are Made of This was on and Love's a Stranger. But when you go back as a whole, as a whole, that that album, these ten tracks, there's not a there's not a bad note, there's not a weak song, nothing. It is no. it's 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 a good it's a great album. Well, we should point out that um, we're going to have Ian back for a second podcast where we're going to talk about <laughs> the B sides and and those all, all those kind of cuts from the album. So we're looking forward to that. That should be really interesting. Maybe um, maybe we can do that as a video one where we actually show some of the 
the uh, the records. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm going to tell you, Ian is going. He, Ian is chomping at the bit to talk about these right. B sides. Loves the B sides. He loves, 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 and he loves. Yeah. To talk well, me, I love, I love the B sides too. So great. Let's let's. Um, Maybe we can expand it to all their B-sides, Ian. How about not just Sweet I'd Dreams? I'd be happy to do that. I think with Sweet Dreams, what so, sort of stands out is it's really sort of a journey because they recorded it over a long period of time. They had, obviously, the three singles before the album was released. And I think there's something about this being their last album they recorded before they were superstars. And you can really feel the work, the grit, the grind, the effort that went into it, and the evolution of their sound. And I think that that's part of what makes it so fascinating. And that carries through with the B-sides as well. Yeah, well... well we're going to probably have to wrap this podcast up. We're at an hour and 20 minutes now. Sorry. So, oh, my. Gonna, no, 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 no. This was great. I want to thank Ian for joining us, and he'll be back for our podcast on B-Side. So stay tuned for that. Mark, anything you want to say? Fine. Final we're going to catch up to Ian. It's It'll be tomorrow here soon. He's already. I love our little time travel on our podcast. Yes. That he's in another whole other day. He's already gone. And it's been fun. And really, though, seriously, though, Ian, uh, I've wanted you as a guest on the podcast for a long time. You're you're you you are su such a great fan. You're you have such great insights. And I knew you'd be perfect for this. And thank you for agreeing to uh, come on and thank yes, everyone. Thank you. Well, yeah. and very, very valuable and fascinating. Thank, thank both of you because these podcasts have really breathed a lot of life into the Eurythmics community. I mean, it's always been vital and, and, and vi you know, vibrant, but I think these podcasts have really done such a good job of celebrating Eurythmics and all that they mean to, to people, including the musicians involved. I mean, you guys are rock stars now. You're, you're, you're part of the team with getting Dave and, and Jimmy Z and Jonice on board so it really is an honor to be have been asked to be part of this and i look forward to listening to all your subsequent podcasts and, and being part of one on, on the b-side so thank you very much well thank you thank you again that's nice to be all right thanks everybody for listening what what are you going to close us out here Rex? <laughs> I, I was just going to say um yeah thanks for listening um you talked to ian you talked about how uh you know, we've had Jonice and Dave and Jimmy. So, Annie, we're coming for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, we've got that written down somewhere. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thank you.